Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. If you pick up your Bible and start at the very beginning, you can read the Genesis creation account in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, we find what appears to be another creation account. Man is created before plants and animals, but woman is not created until the very end. Whereas in Genesis 1, plants come first, then animals, and then both male and female are created together in the image of God. Because of this, many source-critical scholars suggest there were two distinct creation accounts that were part of different ancient Israelite sources. Allegedly, a redactor combined four different sources from Israel's past into the present form of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. When this happened, the two creation accounts were put side by side in the Pentateuch, even though they contradict. However, this hypothesis is not without its critics. There is a lot of evidence that suggests Genesis 1 and 2 were meant to function as a unified narrative. The documentary hypothesis is the idea that five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, was originally four separate sources that were combined into one. Genesis 1 to 11 is a mix of the J and the P source. Source critics will assign the creation account of Genesis 1 to 2 4a to the P source and Genesis 2 4b to 426 to J. The reason for this is because it appears on the surface that the two accounts contradict. At the end of the first account, God has finished his work of creating plants, animals, and humans, and then rests. But then in Genesis 2, it says there were no plants in the land. Then it appears man is created again, followed by plants, animals, and then woman. So it is argued that the best explanation for these alleged differences is that there were two separate creation accounts combined into one. However, it may not be that these two accounts contradict and may have been written as they were to complement each other. First, a change in style between Genesis 1 and 2 may not be an indication of different sources. James W. Watts says, Egyptian myths, mortuary autobiographies, and royal inscriptions often switch between prose to hymnic poetry and back again. Joshua Berman notes the Kadesh inscription preserves two accounts of the same battle, and they vary in style and details of how the battle played out. Merely having two different accounts side by side is not necessarily evidence that we have two sources stitched together. Second, Isaac Kikawada has argued there are ancient Near Eastern accounts that contain doublets of the creation of mankind, one in general terms and another in specific terms. He draws attention to the Atrahasis and the story of Enki and Ninma. In the Atrahasis, the goddess Mami finishes her work and then says she has completed her tasks and the workload of the gods has been transferred to mankind. But then we read after this, she goes on to create seven pairs of humans, marriage and childbirth are instituted, and then the people begin laboring for the gods. So could we conclude there are two creations of humanity in the Atrahasis? In Enki and Ninma, Kikawada suggests the first section covers general aspects regarding the creation of mankind and how their fate will be decreed. Then the second half covers the creation in specific terms. 
part two is a sequel in specifics that follow the general proclamations of the first half. He says, The technique of bringing two independent parts together into a unified narrative is quite similar to the way in which a bicolon in poetry is composed, namely by juxtaposition of two similar materials according to the principle of parallelism of the members. In Genesis, the first account covers the creation of the world and how God controls the cosmos. Humanity is only spoken of in general terms. The second account hones it on mankind and how man is meant to live in his world and his relationship to God. Having two accounts side by side, one covering general aspects and another covering details, may not be an indication of contradictory accounts from different sources, but represent a doublet nature of a unified text, like what we find in other texts from the ancient Near East. Furthermore, it can be challenged that the two accounts are contradictory. Instead, they may complement one another. John Walton and Catherine McDowell have suggested Genesis 2 and 3 were meant to be a sequel to Genesis 1. Genesis 2-4 uses a Toledoth formula to introduce the chapter. First, source critics often break this verse up, stating the first part belongs to P, or a priestly redactor, and the second part is the opening of the J account. However, the whole verse itself has an internal chiastic structure, with infinitive construct forms of the Hebrew verbs to create and to make found at the center of the chiasm. This suggests the chapters were meant to be unified and cannot be divided as source critics suggest. Genesis 2-4 was meant to be understood as the beginning of the account that focuses on specifics, while being understood to flow seamlessly from chapter 1. Second, when this phrase appears at other places in Genesis, it always is used to introduce the descendants of someone or what comes after the person. Given this logic, when the phrase is used in Genesis 2, the author is likely suggesting that what follows happened after the seven days of Genesis 1. Following the ancient Near Eastern parallels we discussed, Genesis 1 can be seen as referring to the cosmos and humanity in general terms. Then Genesis 2 and 3 focus on the specifics about what comes after the general proclamations from the prior chapter. Humanity was elected to be the image of God in Genesis 1, but what this means is not specified. As McDowell suggests, the following chapters are meant to provide commentary on what this means. Moreover, Genesis 2's focus is not on the whole cosmos, as is the case in Genesis 1, but its focus is on a specific geographical region that lacked agriculture. The reference to there being no plants in verse 5 and 6 seems qualified so as to indicate that they refer to cultivated crops rather than general vegetation of Genesis 1 available to the gatherer. So it's not a reference to there being no plants yet, thereby contradicting Genesis 1, but a reference to the lack of cultivated crops. In other words, the authors of Genesis 2 are noting there was no cultivation yet in this uncultivated land. The text also refers to this region as being watered by a mist, implying it is referring to a specific location which had this feature. Then the text specifically notes the events of Genesis 2 are taking place in a region called Eden, where God planted a garden. It is there only in the garden that God creates every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This is not referring to a second creation of plants over all the earth. And this suggests everything that happens in Genesis 2 occurs only in Eden, which does not include the whole planet. Trigbe Medinger admits, 
What we have on the surface level in Genesis 2 is a garden planted for the maintenance of humans, and man's work here has the primary function of providing food. Additionally, the animals of Genesis 2 are not made to fill the earth. Instead, within the garden, the type of each animal is made for the purpose of being named by the man. This is not an account of making the animals to inhabit the earth, but an event when each animal was named. The humans of Genesis 2 are not spoken of in general terms. The chapter refers to a specific couple, either called or made for the specific purpose of working in the garden. There is also no mention of light or day and night being established, no luminaries created, and no mention of sea creatures. If this is another creation account, it seems to lack essential aspects and has a different focus. So Genesis 2's focus is different from Genesis 1. Genesis 1's focus is on the whole cosmos. Then God hones it on a specific area, the land of Eden, to cover specifics that happen after the seven days of Genesis 1, which is meant to explain further what it means to be the image of God. A couple is placed in the garden to work it, whereas in Genesis 1, humanity is spoken of in general terms before God planted a garden in Eden and had Adam and Eve tend to it. John Walton says, Genesis 2 explains how humans function in sacred space and on its behalf, in contrast to Genesis 1, which addressed how sacred space functioned for humanity. Thus, in terms of narrative flow, it does not appear the two accounts necessarily contradict. One is focusing on the cosmos and humanity in general terms, and the second is a sequel, which elaborates in specific terms on what it means to be the image of God, which takes place in a specific geographical region. It does not refer to the whole cosmos, and so is not a recreation of everything that happened in Genesis 1. But the argument can be made that it was a redactor that modified the accounts so that Genesis 2 functioned as a sequel to Genesis 1. Originally, they were separated than J and the P source, but a redactor reworked them so they functioned as a cohesive text. This is possible, but we have to ask if this occurred, how was the redactor able to preserve his sources while reworking them to fit together? Additionally, there are other factors which may indicate the proposed distinction between J and P in Genesis 1 and 3 is illusionary. Benjamin Kilker notes we can find P elements and motifs throughout the Eden narrative. First, we see sanctuary symbolism throughout Genesis 2 that aligns with priestly texts concerning the arrangement of the tabernacle. The garden's entrance was on the east side, which aligns with the entrance for the tabernacle being on the east side as well. The garden was associated with gold and precious stones, which were used in the breastplate of the high priest. Numerous exegetes have pointed out the menorah of the tabernacle symbolized the tree of life. The tree of life, along with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, were in the middle of the garden, similar to how the holy of holies of the tabernacle was at the center of it. The Torah was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and merely touching it would have brought death. Similar to E's claim, touching the tree would have brought death. G.K. Beale says, The tree of life itself is a good candidate to be considered as the model for the lampstand placed directly outside the Holy of Holies. The lampstand in the tabernacle and the temple looked like a small, flowering tree with seven protruding branches from a central trunk, three on one side and three on the other side, and one branch going straight up from the trunk in the middle. Exodus 25, 31-36 pictures the lampstand having a flowering and fructifying appearance of a tree with bulbs and flowers, branches, and almond blossoms. 
Not only does the Garden of Eden match the priestly description of sacred space of the tabernacle, but we also see Adam functions as a priest within the sacred space. Genesis 2.15 has God take the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. These two words are used in priestly texts to summarize the duties of the priests and Levites. The closest parallel is found in Numbers 18.6-7, which reads, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons, with you shall guard your priesthood, for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Catherine McDowell also suggests Genesis 2-3 was meant to be understood as commentary on how humanity was given the Imago Dei in Genesis 1. She says, The Imago Dei concept falters as a comprehensive definition of man because it fails to include certain human aspirations, which are vital to human life, including the unique relationship between male and female, the search for knowledge, including the knowledge of good and evil, and human capacity to assert free will against the will of God. Thus, Genesis 2 redefines over and against Genesis 1, 26-27 what it means to be human. In other words, Genesis 2 was meant to be understood as picking up where Genesis 1 left off and explaining what it means to be the image of God and how this plays out in the relationship between God and humans. This connects the anthropology and themes of Genesis 2-3 with the presentation of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1. Aaron and the priests also are not allowed to enter the tabernacle until the eighth day, because it will take seven days for their ordination to be complete. This is comparable to the combination of Genesis 1 and 2, where God takes seven days to inaugurate the cosmos as his temple. After the Sabbath, God then allows a priestly figure to enter into the sacred space of a garden. P.J. Kearney argued the six commands in the instructions for building the tabernacle correspond to the six days of creation. Thus, just as the ordination of a priest happened on the eighth day, implicit in Genesis 1 and 2, the ordination of Adam's priesthood happens on the eighth day as well, after the seven days of creation. Kilker says, As Moses and Aaron could only enter the tent of meeting after the seven days of its consecration, Adam may enter the Garden of Eden only after the seven-day creation of Genesis 1. Some may suggest this comparison does not work, since sacrifices to God were not performed in Genesis 2. But we should note that the altar is outside of the tent of meeting. The sacrifice only allowed the priest to enter the tabernacle. It was not part of the duties within it, where they would meet with God. Likewise, in the garden, we should not expect Adam to be performing sacrifices yet. Due to the fact that the fall has not yet occurred, and he is already within the sacred space of Eden. Gordon Wenham says, The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary that is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. So far, we can find close parallels to the order of Leviticus 8-9 and Genesis 1-2, but we can see this even continues on with how Leviticus 10 parallels Genesis 3. Genesis 3 recounts the fall of Adam and Eve, and Leviticus 10 recounts the sin of Aaron's sons. After they died, Leviticus records they were carried out in their coats, the same word used in Genesis 3.21 when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden with garments of animal skin. Genesis 3 also notes 
after the sin of eating from the tree, they realized they were naked and immediately took measures to cover their nakedness. This reflects priestly regulations regarding the need to cover one's nakedness in the presence of God. Additionally, after the death of Aaron's sons, Moses warns Aaron and his remaining sons to not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest they die, which is reminiscent of Eve's fear, she will die if she eats of the fruit. They are even warned to not have strong drink in the tent of meeting, lest they die, which alludes to Genesis 2 and 3 in the forbidden fruit in the garden. The formulation of God walking in the garden in Genesis 3.8 is used to describe the divine presence in the tabernacle. Gordon Wenham says, The same term is used to describe the divine presence in the later tent sanctuary in Leviticus 12.16, Deuteronomy 23.15, 2 Samuel 7.6-7. G.G. Harper adds that there are lexical parallels between Genesis 2 and 3 and Leviticus 11 concerning dietary regulations. He says, The implications of this are spelled out via a shared motif of eating forbidden food that connects Israel's story to Adam's, a connection perhaps further indicated by the possible structuring of Leviticus 11.15 on Genesis 3.14-19. When Adam and Eve are exiled, the garden is then guarded by a cherub with a flaming sword. These cherubim are worked into the curtains that make up the wall of the tabernacle. Last, we see in Genesis 4 that after the fall, the sons of Adam and Eve must offer up sacrifices to meet with God, which is similar to the priest of Leviticus offering a sacrifice to enter the sacred space of the tabernacle. Leviticus 10 mentions proper offerings, which include fat and grain offerings. This alludes to the offerings Cain and Abel brought. Leviticus 10.15 also has the same word used in reference to Abel's sacrifice, which God accepted. Thus Gordon Wenham even goes so far as to say, On this interpretation of Genesis 1, there is a very smooth transition to chapters 2-3. It is usually held that Genesis 2-3 came from the Yahwistic source, whereas 1-1-2-3 and the sanctuary regulations in Exodus that explain the symbolism came from the priestly source. Whatever the stylistic differences between the sources, our interpretation suggests that ideologically, the J and P sources are much closer to each other than is usually held. Thus, an interesting pattern emerges. In Genesis 1, the glory of God fills the cosmic sanctuary over seven days, which parallels priestly texts that speak of seven-day consecration themes and shows where God comes to dwell or rest. Genesis 2 picks up on the eighth day, when priests are appointed to serve God in sacred space. In Genesis 3, due to disobedience of a dietary command, Adam and Eve are banished from the inner realm, and they can no longer be naked before God's presence. Genesis 4 shows the importance of sacrificing to meet with God, in that God accepted Abel's animal sacrifice, but not Cain's. Thus we see a cultic sequence, which has strong affinity to priestly texts and has a coherent narrative flow. On the other side, we can see aspects associated with J in the priestly account of Genesis 1. It has been argued priestly texts speak of God as distant from humanity, whereas J texts anthropomorphize God. Catherine McDowell notes we can see anthropomorphic language in P. While the deity is presented anthropomorphically in Genesis 2.5 to 3.24, in Genesis 1, he speaks both to the heavenly hosts and to the man and the woman, and he creates, not only with Barah, but also with Asa, as in Genesis 2. He also sees or perceives, he names, he sets, and on the seventh day, he finishes the work he has done in rest. 
Some bring up the fact that Genesis 1 uses Elohim and Genesis 2 uses the divine name, which has been used to distinguish between sources. But McDowell notes, the distinction is faulty because the Eden narrative refers to God as Yahweh Elohim. The switch may also reflect a change in the story. When focusing on the cosmos generally, the term Elohim is used. But when the text speaks of God relating to man and woman in more intimate ways, the divine name is added to signify a more personal closeness and represent God entering into a covenantal relationship. So it seems we have a lot of priestly language and themes in Genesis 2-4, and some themes assigned to Jay in the priestly account, which works against the idea these were originally two sources, a redactor combined into one. Now if the similarities we can find in the text assigned to Jay were actually the work of a later redactor who wove priestly themes into the text, then we have to ask how he was able to change so much while at the same time preserving so much of the original sources for later scholars to reconstruct. In other words, if the text was altered by a later redactor, then how can we know the sources are even preserved in the text? As numerous scholars have pointed out, ancient scribes rarely preserve their sources in the text, but instead use sources to make a completely new text. Thus, the Genesis narrative may simply have relied on sources, but was a unified and unique text when it was produced. Benjamin Kilker says we should read Genesis 1-4 as an introduction to the cosmic temple symbolism of the tabernacle, whereby Genesis 1-3 introduces the three levels of holiness, holy of holies, holy antechamber, courtyard, and Genesis 4, the place of sacrifice at the entrance of the tent. I doubt that the so-called two creation accounts have ever been written to be read separated from each other. Adding to this, Kenneth Matthews notes that between Genesis 1 and 4, there are exactly 70 divine designations, with 35 occurring in the first part of God establishing the cosmos as his temple, and the other 35 in the second half, detailing man's relationship with God. The 70th mention results in the climax of people calling on the name of the Lord, which suggests the two sections were meant to function as one single unified narrative. Looking out beyond this section and at the rest of Genesis 1-11, we see there is a mirrored structure in the text. Genesis 8-9 parallels the structure of Genesis 1-3. Genesis 8 follows the same literary sequence of Genesis 1. Then in Genesis 9, Joshua John Van E notes the covenant given there is a restatement of what we find in Genesis 1, 27-30. Noah is then in a garden and is called a man of the soil, which parallels the account of Adam in Genesis 2. Both are then corrupted by fruit, naked, have their senses affected, contain a tempter in the story, with both tempters' offspring being cursed, and conclude with both having their nakedness covered. The overall structure of Genesis 1-11 also has a parallel flow in the narrative structure. Genesis 1 is the creation account, whereas Genesis 8 is the recreation account after the flood. Then what follows in both is an account of God's relationship with humanity. Then in both we see the fall of the man of God, followed by the fall of the family, then the fall of civilization, with both having a break in the story to include a section on genealogies. Breaking this sequence up between J and P ruins this mirrored structure it is strange that on the documentary hypothesis, when J and P were combined, they created this unique and parallel sequence. It seems more likely that Genesis 1-11 was written as a unified narrative without preserving two sources in the text that were stitched together. 
Now, this is not to say there were no sources used in writing Genesis or that there are no redactional layers. We are merely pointing out that the text as it stands works well as a unified narrative, and it is not hopelessly contradictory, which can only be resolved by positing two sources that were stitched together. It is also unlikely the sources the authors used are preserved in the text and can be pulled out and separated. Too much of the literary unity is destroyed, and even if we attempt to do this, we still find motifs and themes assigned to one source throughout the other. And given the ancient Near Eastern context, the text can function as it is, as a unified narrative within their cultural context. The first part covers the general aspects, and the second part covers the specifics. Humanity is given the Imago Dei, but what this means is explained in detail in the following chapters. Therefore, we have good evidence to suggest the text is a unified narrative, and not a combination of contradictory accounts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.